today on Ag News Daily. And you are the one that pointed this out, that they're really following along with the feed grains market. And I think that that is probably going to be the path uh, going forward, that they're all sort of tied together at this point. So whatever your anticipations are for corn and soybean prices, Good afternoon and welcome to another Market Monday episode from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell, and I'm glad to be back, Delaney. Um, But I don't know that either of us are feeling really great today. I just spent four days in Nashville. You had a little bit of a cold over the weekend, so I don't think either of us are going to be super exciting today. No, probably not. But I feel bad for different reasons than probably why you feel bad. You got to go to a bachelorette party. I just sat at home all weekend and uh, watched TV for the most part. Tried not to move a whole lot. I have had a sore throat and I think it's just allergies. They get pretty bad for me this time of year, but they have been worse this year than usual, unfortunately. And I mean, we've been having some rain. I know that Lubbock had some rain while I was gone because when I was flying back yesterday, there was a lot of wet fields that I saw from the sky. And I think that Iowa, if I'm not mm-hmm. correct, has gotten some rain. And I feel like rain always brings in the ickiness. So I definitely don't blame you for, you know, wanting to not move very much. No, yes. And we have had a lot of rain and that I think definitely has a increased pollen and all of that stuff, but we may not be continuing to get a whole lot more rain here moving forward. I don't know. There's a lot of mixed weather models right now, some pointing to rain, some pointing to not a lot of rain. So it's hard to say for sure. Uh, Basically the E, what is it? ECF model and the GFS model, the European model and the basically model that the U.S. uses are having some very different predictions here moving forward. So we will continue to watch that. But uh, I, like I mentioned before, I get Eric Snodgrass's daily weather reports and he's again showing to some very different weather patterns here across those two models. Well, Delaney, we'll have to keep our eyes out on the weather. I think it's a little funny that they're all showing different models, but hopefully we get some good news either way. But some not so great news that the pork industry might be seeing if legislation isn't paused um, is, of course, the harvest line speed issue that we've talked a little bit, little bit about before. It's the NSIS ruling, basically, and National Pork Producers Council, of course, is urging the administration to halt this recent order that would reduce harvest line speeds at pork processing plants. It would, you know, not only hurt the big big guys, but it would hurt the little guys as well. So this is a pretty large scale issue that people are going to have to be paying attention to. And the reason that I'm bringing this up again is because this ruling is set to go into effect on June 29th. That's tomorrow. And this could cause a 2.5% decrease in pork processing capacity. And so this issue, of course, like I just said, it's going to be going into effect tomorrow and beginning on June 30th on Wednesday, all processing facilities operating under the NSIS system will revert to a maximum line speed of just under 1100 head per hour. But the USDA does have until the end of August this year to appeal this decision. So hopefully we have some word You know, I don't think that we'll be getting anything by tomorrow when it's supposed to be going into effect or even on 
even before Wednesday, when all these processing facilities are set to this line speed, but hopefully we get some kind of movement before August. Yeah. And I anticipate that we will get some clarity before then. I'm unsure what happens when we hit tomorrow and it's supposed to go into effect. I assume they'll put some sort of pause period. That's not, of course, the correct term, but they'll probably put something into place tomorrow that says, hey, we're going to push this off a little bit longer. But another thing that's gotten pushed off here uh, or until now really was a petition seeking review of California's Prop 12. But a Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has denied a petition to review California's Prop 12, which, of course, prohibits the sale of meat products that do not conform with the state's animal housing standards. So essentially, this has been going on for a little while now. But basically, the North American Meat Institute asked the high court to review a Ninth Circuit court ruling, which upheld a lower court's denial of the Meat Institute's request for an injunction. The Supreme Court has denied that petition, which essentially means the Supreme Court will not hear a challenge to California's Prop 12, which would require would have required hog producers to abide by certain regulations to sell pork in California. So, like I said, NAMI filed this uh request quite a while ago, and the Supreme Court has just decided not to move forward and hear that. But this could impact producers who want to sell to the state of California who don't um, follow along with the Prop 12 guidelines. And Delaney, not only is it going to be hurting pork producers, but it could hurt these families in California because it's going to cause higher prices for pork. And Mm -hmm. that's, you know, not really a good thing for people who might be on a budget. And I just think that it's going to kind of be a a hurtful ruling all around, of course. Yeah. not really in support of this because I want our pork producers to succeed. And I just don't think that this is a very good decision. That's the one thing I think that I've really said an opinion on, you know, since I've been on the podcast, but I just, I'm not in support. That's really, I think all that I can say. Well, and you're right. It does, it does uh, create the potential for pork prices for consumers to be increased at the grocery store because California is going to limit what products can come into their marketplace, which of course, less supplies will push prices higher. So it could encourage or discourage really consumers at the grocery store to buy pork products. And I just want to bring up once more, Michael Formica with MPPC said this in an interview that we've already featured. So folks, if you want to go back and listen to that, you can on the Ag News Daily website. But Michael Formica, he made the point to say that California actually is a very large pork eating state, which I didn't really take into consideration. But I mean, they have a very large Hispanic population and a very large Asian population. And both of those cultures incorporate pork into a lot of their meals. And those hold those meals hold a lot of significance in those cultures. So I just I don't know how this is going to really, you know, hit those people in California. Not great news to hear today. No, certainly not. And I think this is pretty much it. So this might be about all we can do here for the state of California. But well, Delaney, I have another pork story. I I guess we're just all about pork this Monday. 
but I let this piece of news slip through the cracks last week, but I wanted to come back to it because I think that it's a bit interesting and I have some questions about this news story, but pork shipments from a North Carolina pork processing plant are now blocked from entering Mexico. The plant is located in Tar Heel, North Carolina. It's a Smithfield Foods plant, and it's the largest of its kind in the world. And this company, uh, Smithfield, said last week that Mexico is blocking shipments due to concerns about the quality of hog skins. This plant, this single plant alone, has a slaughter capacity of over 34,000 hogs a day, which accounts for nearly 7% of the total U.S. slaughtering capacity. It's reported that Mexico's decision to halt these shipments from the Smithfield plant happened on June 16th. Smithfield officials say that they are working with authorities to resume shipments as the exported hog skins ultimately came from a third-party company. What was wrong with these pig skins? I am not quite sure, but I mean, pig skins, I don't know if they're a big thing where you're from Delaney, but down here, I mean, people eat a lot of pork skins. Um, you can order them at a couple of restaurants I know here in Lubbock and they're, you know, quite tasty. And I think that they're, you know, a pretty big deal in Mexico. So Mexico's taking this pretty seriously, but I, I just wonder what was wrong with these pig skins. Uh, I don't think I've ever eaten pig skins. I don't know of a lot of people that eat them up here, to be honest, either. You know, it probably sounds kind of gross if you've never eaten them before, but I mean, it's basically just fried pig skin. A lot of people just refer to them as chicharrones and we eat them down here with our queso instead of using tortilla chips sometimes. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know. I, I really do think that they're a, a pretty big deal in Mexico. But like I said, I think they're a pretty big deal in Mexico and they're obviously taking this pretty seriously, but there still hasn't been any other news that I've seen come from this announcement. Again, this was last week. So maybe, you know, Smithfield is working on this and they'll come out with a, a statement later this week or in the near future. Absolutely. I'm sure they will, especially if it is a big market impact like uh, you're suggesting it could be, Ashton. But Another big market impact that we're going to see later this week is, of course, going to be the quarterly grain stock and prospective plantings report, which comes out on Wednesday. We're going to chat about that with Elaine Cub here coming up in just a moment. I believe I mentioned these on the podcast last week, but I can't remember for sure. So I just wanted to make sure we touched on them here briefly. And those are trade estimates heading into this week's report. I'm going to talk acreage here for just a moment, but the average trade estimate for acreage right now for corn is expected to go up just slightly compared to the March 31st forecast, which came in at 91.14 million acres. Trade estimates are pointing to some increases here in corn, about 2 million acres to a 93.78. That's the average trade right now. Highest is about 95.8 and lowest about 92 million acres of corn. On the soybean side of things, we are again expecting to see a slight increase here compared to the March 31st forecast of about 88.95 million acres of soybeans expected to be planted. Total wheat acres are also expected actually to decrease just slightly compared to the March 31st report. But of course, we won't know these final numbers until Wednesday. And it always seems like they kind of do the opposite of what people expect. So hard to predict what the USDA is going to do exactly. But as far as ending stocks go or quarterly stocks go, I should say, uh, the trade ex is expecting to see and quarterly stocks decrease in wheat 
as well as corn and soybeans. So that could prove to be pretty bullish for the report if we do see that follow through. But the acres, increased acres is, of course, bearish for uh, the trade. So it's going to be interesting to see which of those two effects actually happens and plays out on Wednesday. But Ashton, ahead of that report, we are seeing quite a bit of volatility, especially more so due to the weather, but also on the uncertainty of this week's upcoming report. So what do you say we take a look at prices for today? Let's do it. Well, we didn't quite see corn finish limit up today, but we did see a lot of volatility in the July front month contract, ending at 39 cents higher to close at 675 and a half. The D sub 28 to close at 547 and a quarter. In soybeans today, the July contract up 27 and a quarter cent to close at 1357. The November up 42 and three quarters cents to close at 1312 and a half. Pretty much across the wheat complex today, we saw strength, especially in in the spring wheat Minneapolis contract, but Chicago today, nine cents higher in the July month to close at 646. The September up 10 and three quarters to close at 651 and a half. Hopping over to take a look at livestock today, we saw some mixed trade across the protein markets as cattle was mostly lower and lean hogs higher today. August live cattle down $1.20 to close at $121.60. The October down $0.87.5 to close at $127.52.5. And And in feeder cattle today, we did not have limit down moves, but we did see a lot of movement to the downside, especially in the August contract today, which lost $3.20 to close at $156.35. The September down $2.17 to close at $159.07.5. And And in lean hogs today, we saw limit up moves today with the July contract limit up to close at $104.95. The August contract limit up to close at $102.77.5. And wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures, the July contract adding 27 cents today to close at 1692. The August up 28 to close at 1691. Without further ado, Ashen, let's kick it over to our conversation with Elaine Cub. Well, folks, for today's hashtag Market Monday episode, we are joined once again by Elaine Cub, author of Mastering the Grain Markets. Elaine, it's been quite some time since we've had you on. You've got quite a few projects in the works, it sounds like. Well, it's summer, and I'm sure this is true for everybody. Like, even if the project is just going out and standing in the fields and frowning because it hasn't rained, um, there's always something to do. Yeah, there certainly is. And markets have been pretty volatile here the last uh, couple of months, especially due to weather, which I'm sure we'll touch on here today. But we've got a few big reports coming out later this week, Elaine, with the quarterly grain stocks and prospective plantings. Anything we should be aware of heading into that report? Or do you have any hypotheses about what might happen? Yeah, I think that you are absolutely right to lead off talking about the weather and the volatility, because I think day to day, that is exactly what's driving the markets. And you can see evidence of that, um, especially in soybeans, where it's the new crop market that's actually moving the most. You know, for the past or a couple of months ago, it used to be that the big moves were in the nearby contract where people were trading, as you mentioned, the grain stocks that are coming up. So this this phenomenon might change, of course, later this week when that grain stocks report comes out and we're and we're thinking more about old crop supplies. But in the day-to-day movements lately, if it's based on the weather report, you see the biggest move in that November new crop contract. And that's what we're seeing today with soybeans up 42 cents. Um, I think that is directly related to sort of grim hopes for uh, worse weather, especially there in Iowa where you guys are. 
Yeah, absolutely. But what do you, and I anticipate we're probably going to be volatile heading into Wednesday's reports, but any speculation on what you think we may have happen? And obviously the USDA always does the opposite, it seems like, of what the trade is anticipating. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think... So the question is, how much have we been feeding and how much have we been using in ethanol? And I think both of those, there's evidence to suggest that it has been a bullish demand picture, you know, that the disappearance of particularly feed grains like corn um, has been bullish uh, to prices. This is evidenced um, not only in, like we saw the the Catalan feed report lately that came in slightly higher, which of course is a response to all these great beef prices that we've been seeing lately. So there is more Catalan feed. I think the second largest number of Catalan feed for a June 1st Catalan feed number that they have seen at all since they've been doing those records. So a lot of cows out there eating eating feed grains, but also lots of poultry, um, slightly less hogs than a year ago, but still an industry that is on fire to supply that meat. So I think there's enough evidence from 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 food or livestock feed usage and possibly also from ethanol that we would likely see sort of bullish numbers um, out of the disappearance from the grain stocks. And Aline, speaking of uh, feed numbers and feed use, I think that's a nice segue here to talk about the wheat versus corn discussion because we do continue to see especially spring wheat supported right now on weather concerns. But of course, we've also started to see uh, corn fall out about a little bit here. Do you think they're going to be competing for quote unquote feed usage? Yeah, well, let, let me let me get into the subtleties here because that spring wheat market is, you're right, just well, I'm here in South Dakota where there's a lot of spring wheat planted and it headed out so early because we've had so many heat units, you know, growing degree days, but it headed out early. And that's a bad thing because the weather has been so hot and dry right when it was heading and filling up those kernels. And I have pretty grim hopes for uh, nationwide spring wheat yields in 2021. And I think this is probably also true for the Canadian prairies. So personally, I'm still bullish for spring wheat prices. I mean, this I say that even when you've got the futures at 844, I think we could still be bullish. I mean, we've seen that market rally much stronger than that in the past. So spring wheat is sort of in its own special uh, scenario there, particularly because it is a high protein milling wheat market um, that will be competitive internationally. So I, I don't think that spring wheat is going to be destined to compete in the feed grains sector. I think it's going to, you know, every bushel of spring wheat that anybody can come up with will find a milling home. But you were very right to suggest that uh, livestock feeders are out there looking for feed wheat in more of the soft wheat varieties that are in slightly better agronomic conditions, certainly down in Kansas. Um, that's a hard wheat variety, but but they have pretty good yield prospects there as they're getting into harvest now here at the end of June and um, the softer wheat varieties over into Missouri and, and Illinois. So I think there's certainly the potential that that livestock feeders will be switching over um, to something with a higher protein, um, but it won't be spring wheat, I don't think. Elaine, I have a hard time keeping all the wheats uh, straight, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, and we, I mean, we haven't even touched on what white wheats and Australian wheat. I don't know what's going on, but yeah. So across the wheat complex, spring wheat aside, how are Casey and Chicago wheat looking? Is there still reason to believe that uh, they could have some bullish movements here? Well, I think that they 
and you are the one that pointed this out, that they're really following along with the feed grains market. And I think that that is probably going to be the path uh, going forward, that they're all sort of tied together at this point. So whatever your anticipations are for corn and soybean prices, I think you should expect wheat to follow along. However, it kind of feels like just looking at a chart, it feels like the corn and soybeans, uh, at least for now, are not retesting their highs. I mean, from day to day, obviously, they're swinging wildly double digits based on the weather forecast. But it feels like they're they're letting those highs that were uh, established in early May um, be the, the end of it for now. Well, since you uh, led us there, let's talk about corn and soybean prices. You said they're not going to potentially test any new highs at this point in time. That's maybe going to come later this year when we do get some more concrete evidence on weather. But for now, where does new crop corn and old crop corn sit as far as support levels go? Let's talk uh, September and December here since July's about uh, done here. Yeah, and September is really trading like a new crop contract, as it should. I mean, I think everybody was very motivated to plant as much corn early as they could and get that harvested and onto the September market. I think we'll absolutely see early harvesting and, and a lot of corn coming to the ethanol plants and, and feeders in September. So so we're seeing that those two markets really kind of trade together at that 550 roughly level. And, you know, like I said, it 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 wildly moves up or down on any given day and it hasn't uh retested those those highs from may but you know the other mark or the other crop report that we're going to see this week and this is just this afternoon coming up is the crop progress report and uh in any given week we're seeing already crop condition ratings that are not stellar i think something like 65% good to excellent with all of the you know, usual suspects being the ones that are kind of um, poor this year, including Iowa, where I think 36% is neither good nor excellent, but actually just fair. And I think we're starting to get into the time of year, you know, we're going to see a silking number in this afternoon's crop progress report. So it's really the time of year when these condition ratings are really going to matter to yield. I mean, if you've got a, a good condition rating on corn sometime in May, I mean, that's that's fine. That's better than a bad condition rating, but it really doesn't have any sort of statistical reliability when you compare that to actual final yields. However, now when you're in the, the pollination stage, when we're starting to get into the pollination stage there in the center of the corn belt where you are, it really matters that we don't have these great condition ratings. So I think the market will certainly trade dependent on, you know, what, so how much of corn is silking early already and how poor those condition ratings are. And I think that will really be the factor that if we don't see some improvement in certainly the moisture scenario through the Western Corn Belt, but just condition ratings overall, if we don't start to see some improvement, then the market will perhaps uh, make a run at those May highs again, because just fundamentally, we need to have every bushel we can possibly get in 2021, given the, the strong demand scenario. We just absolutely cannot, cannot afford to have poor yields. And at this point, it's looking like we might. What about on the soybean side of things? I mean, they've got a little bit more time here to have uh, some weather on their side. Exactly. Yeah. So corn, we tend to see um, the most price risk or the most the most weather risk premium priced into corn futures contracts, usually in mid-June. Um, and that's because 
agronomically speaking, that's when the crop is at the most risk is when it starts silking and it really needs to have excellent weather during those timeframes. And soybeans, we see the exact same phenomenon, but it's usually two weeks later. So um, that would be more like the start of July, which is what we're coming into now. But whenever you start to see corn freaking out, let's just let's just expect that we should see soybean prices freak out about two weeks later um, based on their agronomic peak risk timeframe, which is when they start flowering, which again, we're going to be able to see in the crop progress reports in the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. So Elaine, quickly here before we move on to livestock, what's your area of support for new crop soybeans? Oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> beans in the teens, you know, just psychologically, I think uh, given the stocks to use ratios that we're in and just sort of the supply and demand scenario that's relatively tight or quite tight, you know, that we're all feeling globally in the past year and carrying on into, into 2021 and 2022, I think beans in the teens psychologically is something that we should expect to continue to see. Fantastic. Okay, Elaine, I want to hop over here and skip cattle for now and talk lean hogs because we've seen about three or four sessions here of big limit move days, some to the downside, a few, of course, here to the upside now, but what's going on there? Well, a number of things, but um, one thing I'll point to is that that, that hogs and pigs report showed uh, year over year that the herd is actually decreasing. And that, of course, is a reflection of all of the challenges that the hog industry faced in 2020 um, with all of the COVID and the PERS. There was even uh, fewer pigs per litter than usual or than because there has been such a trend of growing pigs per litter and that fell in 2020. And I think that was a, a reflection of disease pressure, the PERS pressure, perhaps. Um, so anyway, it's just surprising, I guess, to see the the hog inventory reducing when in fact the industry is probably motivated or certainly economically motivated to you know be selling uh into this hot export market and it's just perhaps not possible for them given the disease pressure and given um uncertainty and given the limited availability of breeding stock perhaps they just haven't been able to expand to the degree that they might have been economically motivated to do so However, you know, maybe that's just as well if we're going to go into 2022 and have a lot of disruption from Prop 12 in California. Mm -hmm. You know, we have really no idea what that's going to do to the pork market and the lean hog market. So, you know, <laughs> actually maybe cutting down some of the of the herd right now in anticipation of that uh, might be a smart thing. Well, Elaine, you know, too, we were talking maybe two months ago, one or two months ago, and the conversation was a little different in the lean hog market. We were talking, maybe we're going to get to 120, 130, but now we've pulled back pretty substantially since then. Are we just going to chop around here sideways for a while, or do you think there's reason to push back higher? No, I don't think there's reason to push back higher. When I see the chart, and you know, we're moving back down towards 100, right? And mm -hmm. To me, that just feels like we're, we hit that seasonal peak a little earlier than anticipated this year. And I guess I can't necessarily point to the reason why that would be. I, I don't, I guess I haven't done a lot of analysis of what the export trends have been in the last couple of weeks, perhaps, because that that has traditionally been the leader of, of setting prices for pork lately. Um, but that could be it, right? It just, we expect to see a seasonal high certainly here in summer, and maybe we've just already hit it. Okay, gotcha. And Elaine, lastly here, wrapping up with the uh, cattle complex, what are your thoughts there moving forward? Well, there is sort of the opposite story from the hogs to pig reports. The, the cattle on feed report showed that, like I mentioned, there's there's 
large, huge numbers of cattle on feed, the second highest number, June 1st number that they've seen, um, and an expansion in the herd. And that, of course, makes sense when you're selling you know, wholesale beef at whatever it is, $230 a hundred weight or whatever it is these days. I mean, there's there's just obviously a lot of money to be made in the beef packing industry, and it is starting finally, thank God, to be passed back into the to the to the live cattle prices and the uh, the cash cattle prices that we're seeing traded out in the countryside. Fantastic, Elaine. Before I let you go, if folks want to chat markets with you or read your book, where should they do that? Yeah, the book is called Mastering the Grain Markets. And I, you know, I continue to get emails from folks who have read it and uh, or, or listen to the audiobook version, you know, and so people keep on keep on finding that book. And uh, that has is great for me to see. And you can find that on Amazon or anywhere. And you can find me on Twitter. It's Elaine Cub. Fantastic, Elaine. Well, I'm looking forward to reading your uh, Cubs Den article this week. I'm sure it's going to be a great one, but thanks again for coming on this week. Absolutely. Thanks, Delaney. Thanks again there to Elaine for coming on and chatting markets with us today. She sounds like she has quite a lot on her plate, so we definitely thank her for taking some time to talk about the markets with us. Yeah, she certainly does. Folks, if you're ever up in uh, Ipswich, South Dakota area, you can stay at Elaine's uh, little bed and breakfast there that she's concocted this summer. Delaney, we might have to take a girl's trip and go live from the bed and breakfast one of these days. But until then, we're just going to keep putting out some great episodes on the Ag News Daily website at agnewsdaily.com. And we're going to be, of course, posting on social media as well. So folks, you'll have to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.